This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It was quite a big day for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. People who say that we were partying in lockdown simply do not know what they are talking about. On Wednesday, he appeared in front of the House of Commons Privileges Committee to defend himself against allegations that he misled Parliament over social gatherings at number 10. And his basic defence was that those gatherings were necessary to the functioning of government and therefore within the rules and guidance. I can see why people might have felt that way. But as I told the House uh, when I came to report on that event, uh, I... I still believe it was within the guidance and within the rule. So, two questions we've asked a few times in the recent past. Is this the beginning of the end of Boris Johnson's political career? And how will this play with millions of people who do if we followed the rules, even at huge personal cost? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Appropriately enough, this week will mark the third anniversary of the first British lockdown. We're recording this on Wednesday evening after Boris Johnson was questioned by MPs on the House of Commons Privileges Committee who are deciding whether he intentionally or recklessly, that's their words, lied to the House of Commons in December 2021 uh, when he was asked about gatherings in Downing Street and claimed, among other things, that the rules were followed at all times. Our political editor, Pippa Kreera, has been watching. Um, hello, Pippa. Hi, hi there. And we should start by saying that it was your reporting with the Mirror that played a big part in getting us to this moment. We're talking about the events of November 2021 when you broke the first party gate story. It was, yes. It feels like a very long time ago now, 16 months or so. <laughs> and it's still rumbling on. Were you in the room today? I wasn't because each organisation was only allowed one person and we decided to dispatch John Crease, our excellent sketch writer. And to be fair, I needed to be sat in front of a computer bashing things out <laughs> anyway. It's all very unglamorous, but but no, I wasn't. The first priority is send the funny guy exactly. in. The funny guy I'm gets not, the seat. I'm not the funny guy. <laughs> now, as well as breaking the first party gate story, it's worth mentioning as well that you were mentioned a couple of times. First of all, in Boris Johnson's defence, he did say at 3.33pm that day, Pippa Kreera, the then political editor of the Daily Mirror, informed the press office by email that the Daily Mirror was intending to run a story relating to allegedly rule-breaking parties. That was one mention. And the second one was in relation to Jack Doyle's WhatsApp message. 
Jack Doyle was the director of communications for Boris Johnson when this story came to light. And the WhatsApp message that you're about to refer to, I think, came in a bundle of evidence that the Privileges Committee released just before the hearing. And I was scrolling through it and came across, I think it was on page 72 or something, this exchange between Jack Doyle and a number 10 official in which Jack Doyle suggests that it gives some advice to the official on how to deal with this story and how to respond to it and says, be robust, they'll get bored, <laughs> which I was pretty surprised by, I have to say. And um, and of course, you know, unluckily for them and maybe luckily for me, um, my boredom threshold is clearly very high. No one was going to get I mean, uh, that's true. I, I don't doubt that for a minute. But at the same time, you'd be quite odd. Someone would be quite odd to get bored by this story as it rolled on, wouldn't they, really, <laughs> as today proved. I don't know about you, but I found it all pretty gripping. It was fascinating stuff, wasn't it? Very dramatic. Yeah. yeah. Tell me then, how, how do we think he performed? Well, I thought going into it that we'd been told by his people that he'd had hours and hours of preparation he's had a he's got a really top dollar um legal team led by lord panic which is costing us the taxpayer a couple of hundred grand and his team were suggesting yesterday that or before the hearing that he was very relaxed about it he was very confident he was sure of his argument so i thought as long as he sticks to the script stays calm stays cool then he'll probably do quite well but actually, he kept, I think, diverging from the script. And he was clearly wound up on a couple of occasions by yeah. members of the committee and yeah. got quite tetchy. And on those moments, he just doesn't really perform his best. And there was one very striking moment right at the end when he suggested that um, he was asked about some of his supporters suggesting that the religious committee was a kangaroo court and he suggested that the best way that MPs could prove their fairness would be to exonerate him <laughs> from any wrongdoing. And yeah, if you yeah, looked yeah, closely, yeah. over his shoulder was sitting Lord Panic, his top legal advisor, who very slightly raised his eyebrows, lowered his head and started shaking it. So Yeah, yeah. That know, was very, yeah, that was quite Trumpish, that logic. He was tetchy, really, wasn't he, from the start, in the sense that with what some would say was characteristic arrogance, he, he from the get-go, attacked the committee and its processes, really, didn't he? I don't think you seriously mean to accuse those individuals of lying, and I don't think you can seriously mean to accuse me of lying. Now, everyone knows that there are some features of this proceeding that are extremely peculiar. I have the utmost respect for you, the Chair, but uh, you've said some things about this matter before reading the evidence, which are plainly uh, and wrongly prejudicial or prejudge the very issue on which you are adjudicating. I mean, he, he, he had a go at them for not publishing, as he saw it, the entirety of the evidence. He talked about the, the idea that the photographs they published, that they made public, were full of sinister pixelations. That's his words. So right from the start, he was sort of, seeking to question and somewhat undermine the very fact that he was there answering the questions, wasn't he? 
Yes, and he wasn't as explicit as some of his supporters, but you know he kicked off with a fairly direct attack at Harriet Harman, the Labour chairwoman of the committee, for some tweets that she suggested that uh, that she issued that suggested he may have misled the comment misled the comments. This is before she'd seen the evidence, and he suggested that her comments were plainly and wrongly prejudicial to the inquiry. But yeah, yeah. oh, as an act of great benevolence, he was going to trust the committee to act impartially and take her at her word in her opening remarks that they would do so. Um, there was also the, the moment we mentioned about him suggesting the best way to uh, prove their fairness would be to exonerate from him from any uh, from any wrongdoing. Um, and um, But he did suggest that the process was inherently unfair and that he thought that if the committee studied it carefully, that they couldn't come to any other conclusion because it would have been utterly insane, his words, for him to have misled <laughs> Parliament and unfair for MPs to conclude he had. I was struck as well by the fact that, I mean, there was a sort of token mention of of contrition and bitter regret, and I understand the public's anger, but he wasn't self-reflective, really, wasn't he? Was he? There, there wasn't much, well, of course, this should never have happened, and I, I, and I understand that. That wasn't his tone, really, at all. He was, he was much more belligerent and on the front foot than he was apologetic. I think there was a, he was making a very clear distinction between apologising again and taking full responsibility again for the, for the breaches in the rules and regulations that took place in Downing Street during lockdown and at the heart of government, which resulted in 126 fixed penalty notices, fines including for himself and Rishi Sunak. So Partygate itself, he was apologetic for briefly, but then he moved on to the, the response. And one thing I've noticed about Boris Johnson during his long career and my many years of covering him is that his instinctive response when under pressure is to double down, to deny and obfuscate. It was no different with Partygate. Number 10, and Boris Johnson particularly, did that from the, from the off. And that this is ultimately what's got him into trouble, that response. But when you moved on to actually, onto the substance of that, of, the, of what he'd actually said to the Commons, then no, he absolutely was not apologetic. And not only that, he was incredibly defensive. Um, and he, he came to, seemed to go back again and again to um, two things. One, suggesting that the evidence that the committee had produced didn't prove that he'd, he could have possibly known, that it was obvious that he would have known that the rules were being breached. And two, that he had relied on the assurances of, uh, of his senior advisors when he went, then went to the Commons and told yeah, them that, that yeah. the rules and guidance had been followed. And yet the evidence bundle that we were presented with this morning suggested that wasn't the case. Simon Case, the Cabinet Secretary, denied that he'd given Johnson any assurances that the rules and guidance were followed at all times. Jack Doyle also said he was unsure of Johnson's statement, um, and he said that these are these are always difficult things to say. And Martin Reynolds, his principal private secretary, commonly known as Party Marty in these parts, Johnson agreed to delete a proposed line for PMQs, stating that all the guidance had been followed after a warning by him. So, at every point, his key contentions were kind of undermined by the evidence. Just let's remind ourselves what the purpose of the Privileges Committee process is, the, the power that it wields and the, and the possible stroke likely outcomes of the hearing. Can you just talk us through that really quick? Yeah, basically, it's to uphold the standards in the House and misleading the House of Commons, which is their way of saying lying to House of Commons, is one of the, the worst offences that a politician can commit. So this hearing is into whether he misled the Commons on those four separate occasions. 
And if they find he did, then they can recommend a sanction. And if that sanction is over, is a suspension of 10 days or more, and MPs then vote to, because it's a recommendation, MPs then back the sanction, um, then it automatically triggers something called a recall petition, which means that 10%, if 10% of his constituents in the West London seat of Uxbridge decide that there should be one, then there's a by-election. Right. So potentially he could right. lose his seat. Uh, and in terms of looking at those possibilities, what do you think all that feels like right now in the immediate aftermath of the hearing? Would you say? I think it feels almost inevitable that the committee will sanction Johnson. They clearly don't buy his interpretation of the guidance. And they were very sceptical about whether he truly believed that everything was in the within the rules. And they won't have liked his attacks on the committee, um, the committee itself. So I think it's almost inevitable that he will be sanctioned. I think the question comes down to by how much, which side of 10 days does it fall? And my, my instinct is that they won't, they won't sanction him for 10 days or more leading to a by-election. It'll be for less than that. So it'll be serious enough yeah. to show that he's in the wrong, but not serious enough to cause a, you know, another political uh, earthquake. With, okay. uh, with potential election battle. Okay, we'll talk about that in greater detail in a moment. Let's just um, pick out some key moments that happened in the course of the hearing. Um, one that obviously stuck out happened quite early on when Boris Johnson was being questioned by Sir Bernard Jenkin about the sort of uh, relationship between what had gone on and the official rules and guidance. Um, and this is one of the more choice exchanges. There were lots of people leading critical organisations around the country and um, a leaving due for everyone else around the country was not acceptable under the guidelines, um, all the rules. So why was it acceptable and necessary for work purposes in number 10? Thank you, Sir Bernard. Well, I, 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 look, I, I, I want to repeat what, what I said at the beginning. I understand that people looking at that photograph will think that it looks like uh, a, uh, a, a social event. It was not a social event. I was, if anybody thinks that I was partying during lockdown, they're, they're completely wrong. That was not a party. What those exchanges highlight is Boris Johnson's essential defence, which was that he didn't intentionally or recklessly lie because he understood those gatherings in Downing Street with booze and the absence of social distancing and all the rest of it as being within the rules and the guidance because, as he saw it, they were essential to the functioning of government and turning up at those gatherings and giving speeches, which seem to be his role at a number of them, is absolutely essential to his job, right? Now, the moral context, let alone the sort of um, legal context for that, it seems to me, is that he's making that case against the backdrop of people not being able to be with their loved ones when they died, not being able to visit relatives in care homes. We all know what people weren't allowed to do, and yet he was arguing it was absolutely essential to government, to his role as Prime Minister, for these gatherings to take place. And I'll cut to the chase now. That's absurd, it seems to me. <laughs> well, I think ultimately that's what, what most people felt, which is why whatever Sue Gray concluded, whatever the police concluded, and whatever the Privileges Committee concluded, in the court of public opinion, Boris Johnson and his and his number 10 team uh, you know, broke the rules. It was one set of rules for them. It was one set of rules for everyone else. It was it was really that simple. And there was a very telling moment when Bernard Jenkins, but and in fact there was a couple of the Tory MPs asked him, asked Boris Johnson, what he would have said from 
at those Downing Street briefings from the podium in Downing Street, had somebody asked him at that time, is it okay to have a leaving do or is it okay to have a birthday party? Is it okay to have a social event at work? And he claimed, he maintained that he would have said, yes, it's up to the organisation to establish the social distancing guidelines and so forth, which really pushes the bounds of credibility. And clearly the committee felt that as well. Hypothetically, if he'd said that, can you imagine? Yeah, well, no, exactly. It would have undermined the, uh, the, the seriousness and credibility of all of the government's advice. It's yeah, another reason yeah. why it's absurd. The other, I mean, the, the other thing which is sort of so absurd, you can't help but laugh out loud, is the idea that leaving dues in particular, which is what some of these were, leaving dues are absolutely essential to the running of an organisation. If there is any kind of gathering in an organisation which is non-essential, it's a leaving due because the person you're celebrating is, is on their way out, right? You can't even say it motivates your staff because it's superfluous. They're going. And the, and the parallel, which um, lots of people have made in, in you know the last 16 months, is that you didn't see... You know, teachers who were at schools during the pandemic having big leaving dues. You didn't see NHS staff and nurses who were on the front line in ICU units or in accidents and emergencies having having bashes involving not just a gathering of people in breach of social distancing guidelines, but also alcohol and in some cases music. So, yes, it stretches the bounds of credulity. And actually, it was interesting that Bernard Jenkin, one of the most senior Tory MPs in the committee, clearly felt the same. He's told Boris Johnson that they that he did he had a different interpretation of of the guidance he said the guidance does not say you can have a thank you party and as many people in the room as you like someone said to me on twitter when when this question of the necessity of leaving dues came up they said um, a funeral is the ultimate leaving deal and we all know what the regulations were as regards those um right then another thing that really really stuck out happened when Boris Johnson was being questioned by Yvonne Fovagu. I think I may have pronounced that correctly. She questioned him about the famous what looked like a garden party in Downing Street in the summer of 2020 uh, and exchanges that Boris Johnson had with Lee Kane. Were any concerns about the gathering's compliance with COVID rules or guidance raised directly with you at the time? No, and uh, the individual that uh, you mentioned who raised concerns, uh, Lee, uh, uh, was if you read what he says, he was he was concerned about the optics, not about the rules, and uh, he himself attended uh, the event, and certainly no no concerns were raised with me. If the event had been within the rules, why was he concerned about the optics? I, I think I, I can't say. I think he was concerned about the impression that uh, people might gain if they looked over uh, the garden wall, if they were coming from the uh, the the media uh, room and, and thought that we were doing something that. Uh, other people weren't allowed to do. And I, I, in my opening um, remarks, I made clear that I, I can see why people might have felt that way. But I, as I told the House uh, when I came to report on that event, uh, I, I still believe it was within the guidance and within the rules. That, I thought, was quite an amazing exchange because it, it cut to the heart of the absurdity of his defence very, very briskly, right? It really crystallised a lot of what we heard. Yeah, I mean, you you really need to picture the scene for this one, I think. There they were in the Downing Street Garden. There was more than 20, 30 people, members of staff there, who received, who were amongst 200, who received an email from Boris Johnson's senior aide saying... Say that slowly, because that's important, isn't it? Martin Reynolds, who at the time was Boris Johnson's principal private secretary, 
sent out, as we were reminded today, 200 invitations to that gathering. Yeah, which was a work event, apparently. But there was there was trestle tables, which were laden with food and booze. Boris Johnson's wife, Carrie, was there. It was her garden. At the time, there was a kind of loophole in the rules, which is why I think Boris Johnson wasn't, wasn't fined for that event, but others were, because it was his garden he lived in, Downing Street. They obviously didn't live there. But it wasn't just Carrie Johnson that was there. It was also advisors, friends from other government departments who shouldn't have been anywhere near Downing Street at that point. And Boris Johnson walks out, thinks he's doing a, says he thinks he's doing like a morale boosting, you know, thank you to the staff, but does admit that if anybody were to climb up and peer over the Downing Street garden wall, then they would see what looked like a social event. I mean, put to one side the fact that they'd be shot if they if they tried to climb up the Downing Street, Street wall. It looked like a social event, but yet he absolutely insisted quite angrily that nobody should suggest that these were social events and that nobody could suggest that these were parties. How dare they suggest they were, that anybody was partying in Downing Street? I mean, I'm not sure I could fit 20 people in my garden, but certainly if I had a table with booze and food and <laughs> people milling around chatting, I mean, what else do you call it? Yeah, we it reached a, a sort of new level of absurdity at that point, I think. Uh, then... There were a couple of exchanges about the assure, the assurances, in quote marks, which is something Boris Johnson specifically referenced in his answers in the House of Commons, the assurances that he'd received from unnamed people at the time about the idea that the gatherings were within the rules and guidance. And the thing that really uh, illustrated this point very, very well, I thought, was what Harriet Harman, the chair of the Privileges Committee, said about that stuff. I, along with my colleagues, was in the House at the time when these assurances were given. And we took them to be serious assurances. You told the House you'd receive assurances. Would you not expect us to be a bit dismayed to hear that it was not from the senior civil servants, it was from political appointees, that they themselves had doubts about it? That it only, cam- it only covered one gathering, it didn't cover the other three. And it only covered the rules. It didn't cover the guidance. I think if you'd have said that to us in the House, and also you were there at the time, so it's a bit hard to understand. Could you let me finish my point? You were there at the time, so it's a bit hard to understand what the nature of an assurance is when you have been there and seen it with your own eyes. That's what came out. The assurances that, by implication, Boris Johnson seemed to suggest were from very, very senior civil servants, I suppose, is what people read into that, right? And or government lawyers. Those assurances had come from political appointees. That's what happened, right? That's right. And Boris Johnson didn't really want to name who had given him that advice. But what we do know from that evidence that was released uh, just before the committee, which we talked about earlier, was that Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, a civil servant rather than a politician, had denied giving Johnson any assurances that COVID rules and guidance were followed at all times in number 10. So, And even his political aides um, that he was relying on, the one who was named was Jack Doyle, said that he was unsure in his witness testimony of Johnson's statement um, that he'd been repeatedly assured no rules were broken, broken, saying that these things were difficult to say. And, and crucially, the names of the people he mentioned, Jack Doyle and James Slack, were actually both at the events. Now, they clearly will have had, you think, some sort of motivation to feel or to at least 
suggest to him that that these rules were in the events because they don't want to be seen to have broken them. Right, right, right. Not only was very, very serious doubt being cast on his insistence in the House of Commons that the, the events had been within the rules and guidance, but also serious doubt was being cast on him saying that he'd been given assurances that that was the case. So on both counts, right, his story was falling apart in front of your eyes. I felt like that watching it. It certainly, as the committee, and it went on for the you know, best part of three and a half hours, as it went on, it felt that both his responses were asking us to stretch credulity and that the committee weren't prepared to do that. And I think the combination of those two things led me to the conclusion, and we'll see after Easter when they publish their report, that it's not, that it didn't go well for him and that it's not likely to end very well for him either. I want to just take a pause here and hear from two people I spoke to ahead of the Boris Johnson hearing. We shouldn't talk about all this solely in terms of what happened at the Privileges Committee and the likely reaction from MPs. The context for that occasion, Boris Johnson's hearing, obviously it was millions of people's experience of the pandemic and how much their observance of the rules contrasts with what happened at the centre of power and also things that went very, very wrong in 2020 and 2021. Joyce Pinfield is the vice chair of the National Care Association and the owner of a care home in Lincolnshire. I started by asking her what life was like back in April 2020. I look after generally people over 65 with complex health needs and dementia, of course. So it was exceedingly difficult trying to uh, get people with dementia to understand what the implications of this virus were and that all the guidance that we were having to follow, such as, you know, infection controls, they, they couldn't understand, of course, the carers wearing masks. So it, it meant that just about everything that people did in the care home in terms of, of uh, looking after people was completely transformed. Is that right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely completely transformed. We went from leading a, a normal life to being very frightened indeed. And of course, the staff were very frightened because if they came to work, would they then be taking the virus home to their families as well? And, and, and so it was terribly frightening, terribly, terribly stressful. Now, that brings me on to a very central question, which is about... Um, the level of help and assistance you got from the government. First of all, as regards guidance, right? So with aside from the question of the practical equipment that you needed to begin to deal with this, in terms of anybody in any position of power or authority saying, and here's what you now have to do, how much of that help did you get in the first instance? In the very first in instance, there was there was basically nothing. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, everybody was on lockdown. We were even getting guidance stating that it was very unlikely that there would be transmission in the community, that care homes didn't need to wear masks. Uh, and yet this was later found to be totally wrong, that transmission was in the community and that we did need to wear masks. What kind of help did you get as regards... PPE, practical help. At the beginning, when it was realised that we needed PPE, we were even making our own visors out of laminated sheets uh, and pieces of Velcro because we couldn't obtain them. Sanitizer, we were just trying to source anywhere. Government in the beginning didn't have the sources of masks. So I spent days on the phone 
trying to obtain masks. Often people were trying to make containers and then it would take three weeks to get those masks into our care facilities. Now, as you were dealing with all that, I suppose you could have come to one or two conclusions. You could have said, well, we've never had to deal with something like this before. I understand it's going to take the government quite a while to get their heads around this and to know how to help people like me. Or did you sense that there were failings? We felt we were neglected. And then the government said they were putting a ring of steel around us. Making sure that we have the protection, that ring of protection around care homes is important. Of course, the majority of care homes have not had an outbreak at all. And we should, uh, we should thank the, those running care homes for the incredible hard work and the infection. Actually, we're still waiting for that ring of steel. It was very scarce and, and I understand why they wanted to clear people out of hospitals to free up beds. But at the same time, the care sector should also have been acknowledged that we needed help as well. This is still raw for you, isn't it? You're still angry about it. Oh, we're still very angry about it. We're very angry that we're still having to follow lots of guidance. Um, it, of course, is bringing it to back to the staff with all of, uh, you know, looking at it again at the moment, it brings up that raw feelings that we felt at the time, not only to our staff, to our residents, but to their families. I wanted to ask you this, towards the end of 2021, having been through this awful experience and in a, being in a position where you were still living with COVID and its effects, I guess, um, this story then started to break about what was happening um, in the highest levels of government as regards people's behaviour when lockdown restrictions were in place. Have a listen to this and tell me how you felt watching it and hearing it. reports from Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh... Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas What's the answer? Right, that's a that's, uh, senior aide to the Prime Minister talking about how they were going to explain to the wider world that there'd been parties in Downing Street and laughing about it. How did you feel when you started to sense that that, that was the stuff that was going on at the top of government? I, I felt very angry that she was treating it with such humour. She found it funny. It really was astounding that we had all been suffering such stress, mental health, you know, has gone off the scale during that time. And yet we were still turning up at work as social care workers, looking after the most vulnerable, trying to protect them from everything possible. And that a person found it funny and that they decided to change the idea of parties. Oh, it must have been a business meeting. But to treat it in such a humor, humorous way and find it funny at the top of government advisers was absolutely astounding but there's the tr uh, treating it with humor and then there's the thing itself that as we now know there were lots of occasions when people in senior positions were having what you and i would understand as social gatherings with booze when when a the rest of us were in lockdown and b more to the point people in your line of work were dealing with impossible circumstances yes we were dealing with impossible cir circumstances and yet these are the people making the guidelines for us. They were the people telling us what to do uh, and they still are giving us guidelines. And our guidelines were always coming out at about five o'clock on a Friday night 
to be implemented almost straight away. So we had to work all week as best we could. And then at the weekends, when usually the managers might get a day off or the admin team might get a day off, they had to stay at work to try and implement those guidelines, which were expected to be implemented as good as immediately. It was terrible. And it was coming out in legal speak, long documents. I was sat up in bed on most Friday nights reading these guidance documents, which could be 100 pages or more, and then trying to interpret how we are going to get that into procedures, inform all our staff, and this is what we have to do from the following week. It, it was just incredible. Yet they had signed it off, sent it out, so they could go and have a nice weekend, and we were left working. Now, I'm talking to you on the day that Boris Johnson um, undergoes this uh, this hours-long hearing about whether or not he lied to Parliament about so-called party gate. I don't know whether that brings it all back, watching Boris Johnson in the headlines in this way. Uh, well, I've, I feel very sorry for the people that lost relatives during that time. To be listening to this and going through it all again, it's bringing back the memories of what happened at that time. And of course, we have to remember there wasn't visiting. You couldn't go into hospitals or into care homes to see your, your loved ones. And it is coming out now that many people didn't manage to see them at their end of life, which is uh, absolutely awful. Care homes and hospitals do have to protect their residents, but there has there has been other ways. We were trying to make uh, pods. We were getting plastic screens so that they could meet face to face without any transmission of the disease. And yet people in government making our guidelines were possibly having parties. If it was proper meetings, we can understand that. But why parties? We couldn't do anything. We couldn't let our relatives even come in to see our most vulnerable people who were very ill. So naturally, it, it does bring it all back to us. And we feel exceedingly cross indeed. Something I don't think we talk about enough when it comes to lockdown is the legacy of COVID, particularly on places that were very hard hit by it. Now, Alice Wiseman is the Director of Public Health in Gateshead in the northeast of England. And I asked her about her thoughts about the long term effects of the pandemic. That's probably the biggest challenge that we've got, you know, is that the impact of the COVID pandemic on our communities was really significant as we expected it to be. You know, we're particularly concerned about young people, um, well, babies who were born during the pandemic who didn't have the opportunity to socialise um, during those, you know, sort of important first few months. We're, we're concerned about young people who've transitioned, you know, into school at the start without having the um, opportunity for their parents to be completely engaged in that process. We've seen a, um, a real spike in our referrals into our uh, child and adolescent mental health services as a result of, of, of some of the issues that our young people have faced. And then, of course, on top of that, in our in our broader community, you know, we've not only had COVID and the impact of COVID, but, you know, this is followed closely by the, you know, cost of living crisis. And actually, that's something that we're really concerned about. And so it does feel like a kind of perfect storm. Yeah, that's always the, the sense I get, which isn't really reflected in the way that we talk about the sort of condition of the country. But the history of the last 10 or 15 years is just one thing after another for people and one sort of trauma, really, after another. Yeah. And, and actually, I reflect on the fact that children who were born in, you know, kind of the early 2000s, you know, have only ever known 
a world of, of turbulence, you know, so they've only ever known the banking crisis, austerity, welfare reform, you know, all of those things. And you just think there's a whole generation of children and young people who've grown up and that's their kind of their normality, if you like. And actually, we really need to think about how we respond to that particular generation so that we can minimise the impact of, you know, their sort of their early life experiences in terms of the rest of their life chances. What was your sense of how um, observant people were of lockdown restrictions where you are? Yeah, so, I mean, our national strategy, I think, was built on the actions of citizens. And we asked them to take really significant actions, really significant sacrifices to reduce the harm not only to themselves, but those around them. You know, and in many ways that sounded really easy, but it did demand that full public engagement and willing. And, you know, I, I really was blown away by the community response in, in Gateshead and in the rest of the northeast. It's not very subtle, the reason that I'm asking you this question. And you'll have you'd have probably detected why I'm asking, or partly why I'm asking you this question. But the point is that people were prepared to drastically change the way that they lived temporarily, or though for quite a long time, right? In a way that involved a lot of sort of privation and suffering in the cause of the greater good. That's what happened. And at least initially, I think COVID-19 gave us a collective goal and that sort of greater sense of it's not just about me or my close family. This is about me and my community. And even if the ultimate goal is to protect ourselves and our family, actually, we could only do this by working together. Infectious disease can only spread if we kind of give it the the circumstances in which it can spread. Some people made really significant sacrifices. They weren't there when they're relatives and their loved ones passed away you know and other people made other sets of sacrifices such as not seeing you know close family or close friends that you know enable them to have you know the sort of well-being on a normal situation if you like so you know sacrifices were varied but many and I would suggest that the vast vast majority of people you know absolutely embraced that certainly in the early phase. That's a bit yeah but it's more than embraced it isn't it when I'm out reporting, occasionally I meet people who say, oh, come on, everybody broke the rules. And my response to that is always the vast majority of people did not break the rules. No. Well, if they had, we would have seen a much greater number of cases. We'd have seen a much greater number of deaths. Okay. I think the evidence speaks for itself in that respect. What was the was the effect of this on you? So, in other words, looking back on your own experiences... And what you went through, what was that like, that sort of two-year period when the pandemic was at its peak? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you run on adrenaline, you know, and actually it was really interesting in the early weeks of the pandemic, working with colleagues who are much um, more used to responding to crisis. So our police, our fire colleagues, and they're used to, you know, sort of kind of working at this really sort of intensive, you know, we were meeting twice a day, we were, you know, having lots of conversations around where we needed to put the resources, we were mobilising things. But in our heads as public health people, we knew that this wasn't going to end in two weeks or four weeks or a month. Or Do you know, we knew that this was going to go on. And I think managing and, and I guess reflecting back on that, thinking about actually how do you manage your own resilience at a point where you, you know that this is going to go on for 12 months, um, you know, 18 months. And certainly many of my colleagues, myself, you know, directors of public health, public health consultants, you know, it really impacted on their home lives and their ability to spend time with their children, you know, with their partners. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about the pandemic and the way it affected Gateshead and still does. Now, doubtless in your in your role, you can't give me an opinion on this, but I do wonder what was going through your head when you heard or read about all the parties that had gone on in 
10 Downing Street and Whitehall at the time? So, I mean, I, I always think about the role that I have in, in this space. And so, you know, for me, um, I, I felt like I was part of the um, arrangements for restrictions. Um, and so actually I would do everything in my power to make sure that I was modelling more than good practice, you know, that actually, you know, for example, when people were allowed to have that day together, um, Christmas 2020, I made the decision that I didn't think that was right um, from a COVID-19 perspective. So I spent the day with my uh, 15-year-old son and it was just the two of us on, on Christmas Day. And the reason I did that was because I felt that I needed to more than model good practice. And I know many of my colleagues felt felt the same with that. So I can only talk about myself, but I think you lead by example. Right, on that note, we'll finish. Thank you so much for talking to us, Alice. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. When we come back, we'll hear more from our political editor, Pippa Creero. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Pippa Kreera is still with me. Let's talk in slightly more detail about what might happen next when the Privileges Committee comes to its verdict and then what that triggers as far as sort of further action for Boris Johnson is concerned. So you've said it's likely that they're going to sanction him. The likelihood, as you see it, is that it'll be less than 10 days and therefore that mechanism for triggering a recall petition in this constituency, that's not very likely as you see it. That's how I see it, but that is just my view. And, uh, you know, I could I could be proven wrong in a few weeks' time. But that's still serious for Boris Johnson and his future prospects in the obvious context of the fact that we hear every week, don't we, rumbles from supposedly from within the Conservative Party that Boris Johnson may or may not be on the verge of some or other comeback, right? It's It's very serious. And actually, I think it's... I think it reflects where Boris Johnson really is in terms of all these reports that he wants to make it back to the big job. His support has been waning over time, and particularly so when Rishi Sunak in parallel seems to have kind of got a bit of a grip and got the Conservatives over there in the immediate chaos of the last year and has had some successes. You know, he's he's signed the Northern Ireland Protocol deal. He's had various votes in the Commons. He looks like somebody that 
has defied expectation and got a bit of a grip on what was previously regarded as a unwieldy, ungovernable party. And so in contrast with his relative successes within the Conservative Party, the reminder of Boris Johnson this week coming back and ripping everything up again and reminding everyone that the Tories were rule breakers and, you know, un- hypocrites during that this is, you know, during the pandemic and whatever else they think about them is really bad news for the Conservatives. And any Conservative MP, the vast majority of Tory backbenchers I speak to are like, we just want the Boris show to move on. We've had enough of it. The public has had enough of it. We want to get back to showing that we are capable of the serious business of governing. Okay, but even if a by-election doesn't materialise, this story has got legs until after Easter, at least, right? It's This is going to go on. And Rishi Sunak must be hating it, let's be honest. I think increasingly he will feel that Johnson isn't a direct threat as long as his more sort of managerial, capable style, style of government continues and as long as the economy gets a bit more back on track. The danger zone, I think, for Sunak is the May elections, if the Conservatives do badly, and the run-up to the the next general election, if Conservative MPs think that this is a moment en masse where loads of them could lose their seats, then they potentially could cast around for somebody they regard as an election winner in the form of Boris Johnson. I think that number, though, of those who believe that he's an election winner and certainly the polls and the focus groups all reflect this, is diminishing rapidly. And the rest of them kind of feel that Sunak is their best chance. Actually, the things that got Boris Johnson elected, Jeremy Corbyn's no longer there, Brexit's not the issue it was, the force of his personality has been completely undermined by the way he acted in government and the scandals which brought him down. And he's not the electoral force. He doesn't have the gold dust anymore. No, no, no. And and on Wednesday, people were reminded once again of this very, very vivid story, which by comparison with most political stories has this glorious simplicity about it, which, as I said a moment ago, comes down to the fact that when most people weren't allowed to go to funerals in significant numbers and be with their loved ones while they died or go over to their their parents with their kids and all the things that we all went through we all know what was going on in Downing Street and more to the point Boris Johnson belligerently defends the fact that all that stuff went on it's a terrible terrible political look in that sense it is well I've been very struck from the very beginning um Boris Johnson in his evidence to the committee his written evidence to the committee said he didn't expect this to be the story that it was I think There were lots of people when that story first broke 16 months ago that suggested it was a bubble issue, they thought it wouldn't have traction, they didn't see where it was going to go. Lots of them told me that. And I'm not pretending that I had some sort of great insight into what then would come to pass. But what I did know is how people in the real world feel about that sort of hypocrisy. And I'd seen it with the Dominic Cummings Barnard Castle story, which we did the year before. And I felt that actually when people made such sacrifices and people made all different degrees of sacrifices, but it was like a very much shared collective endeavour right across the country. The last thing they wanted to see is that the people that wrote the rules and imposed the rules on them by which we all lived, breaking them themselves. So he, I think, I think throughout he's, he's thought it was, it was trivial. He thought it was about champagne and cake, but it never was. It was about one set of rules for them and one set of rules for everyone else. 
There was a very good column by Danny Finkelstein in The Times where he made the point that the idea that Boris Johnson played fast and loose with the truth and was a rogue, really, served him quite well politically because he did it with a nod and a wink and therefore sort of conveyed the idea that anyone who liked him was somehow in on the joke, that this was all a kind of prank at the expense of pomposity in politics, you know, and politics as usual and all that. And that worked for a while, but a word you used a moment ago, hypocrisy, is something very, very different. And although I still, you know, and I'm out talking to people on the street, I still meet people who say, oh, would it be great if we had Boris back? But to echo something you said a moment ago, their numbers have dwindled. And the idea that there's something funny about Boris has much less purchase because of the fact that he's now the absolute embodiment of double standards. And ironically, actually, he now comes to represent something which he surfed to become more and more popular, which was this this idea of a sort of morally bankrupt, distant, distant elite. He's that now, right? He's become what he ran against. But it was almost inevitable, I think, having covered him for such a long time and seeing how he works. He was never the sort of anti-establishment, anti-elite figure that he managed to project to the masses that he was. And it felt to me that it was always only a matter of time before he was found out. I mean, quite apart from what's happened this week, it's quite hard to carry that off when Correct me if I'm wrong, in the last two or three months, Boris Johnson has earned outside Parliament, what, about five million quid or something? Oh, about five five million, yeah, yeah. He's not short of a buck or two. On that note, we will bring things to a close. Thank you so much for joining us, Pippa. Thanks for having me. Great us to be here as always. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's action-packed episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, the music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. See you next week. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.